This episode of Untold is with John Hall. John is one of the pioneers of corporate hospitality and group sports travel. A most admired and exceptionally well-connected man, John with his family and friends established Gulliver's Sports Travel, taking millions of enthusiasts to marquee events, including World Cups, Ashes Tests, Lions Tours, around the world for many weeks at a time. John's career has spanned a plethora of industries, including transport, recruitment, undertaking, florists, pubs, hotels, and nightclubs. But for the purpose of this podcast, we'll be focusing and concentrating on his biggest business, Gulliver's Sports Travel, and its international tourism evolution and his key contacts through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. Thanks to John, there are millions of sporting fans around the world who've been able to combine the life-changing experience of travel while supporting their favorite team at bucket list events. It's a wonderful legacy that John can be rightly proud. John's role in growing sport globally cannot be underestimated. And in terms of rugby, it's no understatement to say the game owes him and his colleagues at Gulliver's a huge thanks for their help in growing the game. Enjoy Untold with John Hall. Speaking to friends, industry contacts around the globe, and people always know and, and like you immensely, what, what's the secret to being so well networked and being held in regard by so many people? Hmm. Um, well, I think rugby has a lot to do with it. And, and obviously, that's where Gulliver's primarily kind of grew from um, and I think you know and I played a lot of rugby myself and and then in later later life a lot of some of those guys I actually could who were played against um, I mean I you know I my highest level I suppose was playing against the All Blacks from the northeast of England had a couple of England trials um, played against Australia in 73 and I was reserved for an England tour to Australia but all of that. I mean, one of the guys, Andy Hayden, who was a great second row for New Zealand, um, I, in 1972, you know, played, jumped against him, never met him before. Um, he gave me his jersey after the game, and as he used to do in those days and all that. And um, But he then kind of got into the hospitality business in New Zealand, and he opened quite a few doors for me later on as well, as did Paul McLean, who I played against for Australia. Uh, and and that got the the con the contacts particularly sort of on the on the worldwide front moving. But I think I was just I was lucky in a lot of ways that the that business really hadn't it it, it was absolutely nouveau the idea of going on a on a rugby trip down to New Zealand Australia. Very few people actually thought about that in the late seventies. 
And I think I remember even by 1981, when um, we were just starting to get into our stride a little bit, but then Cathay Pacific launched from um, the, the, their first uh, London, Bahrain, Hong, Hong Kong flight. And John Fitzgerald was the sales manager who I'd known, I think, from his British Airways day. And he he was tasked with getting this air, airline up and running from the UK. And he he said, Lord John, why don't you fancy any new my connections with rugby? Take a few people to the Hong Kong Sevens and we'll help you with the, uh, you know, the marketing, etc. And I, I thought at the time, you crazy, go to Hong Kong for a weekend. Who wants to do that? Yeah, I mean, it actually was my thought at the time. But I mean, that thing just grew to such a such an extent that, you know, by 1997, which was kind of the zenith of and uh, the handover year in Hong Kong, uh, and they it was nominated the Rugby World Cup Sevens that year as well. We took 1,800 people. So the, the sort of it, it kicked off all this mass movement. And I, I, the same thing happened. I think our first Lions rugby tour was to South Africa in 1980, and we took 120 down there. But Lions tours by 2000 and what say the 2001 to Australia, there was about 3,000 we took there. Likewise, three and a half thousand to the Rugby World Cup in 2003. So it was large numbers, great business for hoteliers. And I got a lot of, um, had a lot of very nice hotelier mates as well, who, who were really keen to see rugby fans as well, because rugby fans don't do perhaps this sort of get up the antics, perhaps some soccer supporters do. John, your links to rugby are well-renowned, but perhaps what people aren't quite aware of is your big break actually came with the round ball and, and football and Leeds United. You're able to tell us how this opportunity came around and how it helped shape what you described as a small Tewkesbury-based travel agency moving into the group sports travel niche. It was actually soccer that really actually got us going just by an absolute fluke and insofar as getting tickets in Paris is concerned because Andy Ripley who you may recall great rugby player died about 12 years ago I'd 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 played um I'd he'd been a pal of mine I was playing rugby at Cheltenham who were then a better side than Gloucester in the late 60s we'd beat Gloucester home and away keep having to remind people of that one <laughs> um, I know Cheltenham have kind of gone down the leagues now but Andy came to, to pre-season training, I think, in 1968 at Cheltenham, and I got I got to know him there, and we kept up a friendship, a relationship. I I you know, went to his wedding in in, uh, in Austria. I actually did a reading at his funeral as well. So we, we went all the way through. But he had then he'd gone to East Anglia University, then gone to Paris, the Sorbonne, around about 71. Um, and been at university there, played for Paris University Club. He uh, and he introduced me to a pal of his called Gerard Crotov, who was quite a well-known name in French rugby at the time, who was a, a haute, haute fonctionnaire within the Mairie de pa of, of Paris. And this all 
it came, I, I guess it was in all over the papers, that Leeds United, they'd beaten Barcelona in the semi-final and they'd got to the final of the European Football Cup in Paris. And uh, they, there was huge cry out about there was not enough tickets for Leeds supporters, etc. And just by chance, um, Gerard said to Andy, um, knowing I'd got this little travel agency running, which in 70, 75, you know, was, was really just a little window in a high street in Tewkesbury. And um, he said, um, I, I think I've got a chance of getting uh, a few tickets for that game. And bearing in mind, the Prime Minister at the time was Jacques Chirac, but he was from the, the Paris Mary. And I know he got involved in it somewhere along the line. But um, he um, I, he said, come on over. I went over to Paris about a fortnight before the game and um, went for a meeting in the, in the, at the Mary in Paris with him. And I, I thought, we're going to, can he, um, I, how many tickets do you want? I thought, well, I might get 50. And he said, is that all? Um, and he, I, I said, well, 200? He said, well, I'll make it 250. And there was, you couldn't get a ticket anywhere else. Uh, you know, it was absolute. So I thought, right, we've got these tickets. What are we going to do with them? Came back to um, to Tewkesbury. And I remember it was a Saturday morning. And my sister, Rosie, had come, who'd worked in the travel industry in the Northeast, had come down to run this little travel agency for us. Said, right, what are we going to do? We'll put together packages from Leeds United by bus from Ellen, pick up Ellen Road, down to down to Paris. The big problem, one of the problems then was the two main uh, ferry companies, Townsend Torreson and Sealink, wouldn't allow football supporters. But there was a new operation from Sheerness to Vlissingen in, in southern Holland. So what we did, we we sent. Well, first of all, to get get them booked, we thought, well, hang on, how do we? This is like ten days away from the game. I think it was a Saturday, I remember it was a Saturday morning. So I I called up a BBC local radio station and said, look, I've got these tickets and packages, but you know, you've got to get on a bus. We're out from Elland Road to Paris and back. And <clears throat> it's about 60 quid or something like this. I, I can't remember what it was now. And so this went out and the Leeds switchboard and back in those days of course there were telephonists who were putting you through on the phone etc and eventually my sister the, the 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 lady up in the the telephone exchange in Leeds said look just keep the phone to your ear I'll just keep on plugging them in plugging them in each one so we we basically filled up 40 people on each bus I think or something like that and said, right, you're, you're on bus one, two, three, four, five, or six, and, and took the name. And there was no credit cards in those days, so we couldn't get any money. The only way we could do it was to go up there, and I had, with the actual buses eventually, with a, a clipboard with the names of who was on each bus, they were all lined up. And I remember lining up the buses all along Elland Road, the turnstiles that they used to go into there. I'm sure they've all been uh, knocked down now. I don't know. But I took the cash off them as they got on the bus. And he loaded the buses up and off we went down to, down to um, Sheerness for an overnight ferry. 
to Flushing, next morning off the boat, drive down to Paris, into Paris, and this is where my pal Gerard got his little take out of it. He had a restaurant, uh, he had a bar and a, a restaurant in Place de la Madeleine called Le Clubhouse, which uh, was just, he's getting going then. So he said, look, make sure you put everybody through my restaurant. For, so a meal was organized. So they had a meal and the and a tour of Paris, and then down to Parc de Prince for the game. All the buses were all lined up there. Um, you could get quite close there. They were all lined up, ready to go straight after the game, which was actually quite fortunate because the game, uh, Leeds lost 2-0, and it was hugely volatile. It was a French referee, and um, it was um, it, it, it all ended up in a lot of chaos afterwards, and the supporters pulling the seats out, throwing them on the pitch, and... Um, and in actual fact, a couple of buses were set fire to outside, but not ours. And somehow or other, we managed to get everybody out of the stadium, got them on the buses, and they headed straight out of Paris overnight to Flushing to get on the 11 o'clock boat from Vlissingen, Flushing to Sheerness and back, and back to Leeds. And, and, and that worked superbly. But the main, what happened from that was it gave me the opening then for what were really the biggest thing was for the, the six nations, well, sorry, five nations games in Paris. And back in those days, so by 76, that was 75, the Leeds United game, by 70, 76, we did our first five nations. England were for England fans. And again, I had the um, my friend in Paris who helped with the tickets. And... Um, and then, but the, but by far the biggest was the Welsh contingent for France Wales, all by all by going by bus back in those days to Paris for the for the France Wales game, <clears throat> and that that all built up to um, used to take a couple of thousand and you know, in so, the finish for six nations, six, five Six Nations games, yeah. So John, that leads. Bayern, it it really was transformative in that you move from being a more traditional high street travel just to seeing the white space and niche that existed for organized yeah. sports tours and putting yeah. together the packaging of tickets, accommodation, and and obviously the ferry and and buses. Yeah, we. I mean, the, the I think at that time there was no actual travel company with the word sports in its name. We hadn't put the sports into, it was Gulliver's Travel at that time. Um, and it, it, later we then changed it to Gulliver's Sports Travel. And um, But then the next thing that came along was um, our, I didn't really get too, although I did do, I remember we, I organized um, a football tour to Switzerland for a little club called Brockworth Football Club from Gloucester. and. Um, I went on that uh, and went to an old ski resort in, in not in the in, in the in the skiing season with them and um, uh, had a had a good time with them. But there was kind of a momentum picking up. But at that time, club rugby club tours went to the Isle of Man, Jersey, South Wales, um, Devon, Cornwall. Um, nobody was really branching out, uh, sort of like thinking we're going to go much further afield. And, and, and 
they were all little little club tours. But then I think the first one was um, locally, Cheltenham North Rugby Club. Uh, it was in my last season. I only played a couple of years at Gloucester, but I think it was 76. And um, Cheltenham North Rugby Club, one of the local clubs there, said, John, we, we want to go. There's, there used to be a big beer festival in Belgium. It's probably still there now called Louisa Beer Festival. And they said, we'd like to go. Or the boys would like to go. But if we just go to a beer festival, um, we're going to have to take the women. So they said, is there any chance you could find us a couple of rugby games in Belgium? Because if it's a rugby tour, the girl, the women can't come with us. So I, by, again, by chance, I had a friend, a friend who... Um, who played for Brussels British Rugby Club. So I got on to him and Sean, and they were delighted back in those days. They were just, oh yeah, great, an English club to come over and play in Brussels. And this other game actually he organised was against Standard Liège, which to me was a famous football club. But of course in Europe, a lot of those clubs are multi-sport. And so they played against Brussels British and they went over, they had a fantastic weekend. And I think there was a magazine, Rugby World. Well, it's still there now, I think, that it started up. So we were starting to do some advertising in that. And Guernsey Rugby Club got on to me and said, do you think you could do a promotion to get some clubs to come over and play in Guernsey? So they said, look, we get you some good deals with Sealink, the ferry operator. And um, but the most bizarre thing about it all was that as, as an incentive, I and mean, can you imagine that this these days, they um, as part of the, the the trip, everybody got from Sea Link a bottle of Johnny Walker whiskey. Everybody, <laughs> oh, the whole group. It was that was their the incentive to go on this rugby tour and everybody gets a bottle of Johnny Walker whiskey. Can you imagine us doing that? Anybody doing that these days? Well, quite the contrast to your first story, where the ferry companies wouldn't let the football fans on the on the no, boat. No, for rugby, different. <laughs> John, you were brought up on a farm in Northumberland, and then went to Bow School, followed by Durham School. But your geographical movements within the UK then took you to the southwest, and three years at the Royal Agricultural College in Cirencester. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you progressed from there? Because um, I understand your businesses were, were quite disassociated or, or not linked to agriculture, even though that was your initial aim when you made the big move from the northeast to the southwest. Well, to start off with, it was just a little travel agency on one side of this, uh, this was originally a, um, a grocery shop, and we split it up in the high street in Tewkesbury. And the one side... Um, it was a delicatessen, grocery, wine and spirit place. And we had this other window on the other side and we thought, well, what are we going to do with it? And to start off with it, because I'm into my music a bit, I thought, well, with the, there isn't a record shop back in there. Vinyl, of course, was king in the uh, early 70s. And I thought, well, yeah, why? I would get a, have a, open a record shop. And then somewhere along the line, somebody suggests, well, Tewkesbury hasn't got a travel agent. So we thought, of, well, what are we going to call it? Tewkesbury Travel? I don't know. And then 
actually it was it was John Maycock who who I was in in, in business with. He just he came well Gulliver's Travel, so that was it. So the first three years were uh, just running it as a regular travel agency, but I. I needed somebody who knew a little bit about the travel business. So my sister had been working for um, a guy called Ray Burnstone, who was quite a well-known in the in the travel industry in Newcastle, running a company called Tourista. And um, she came down to to run it, basically. And um, But the, I think after about three years, so that was, I think we started in 72, so by 70 five it wasn't making any money i think we'd had a we'd had a few good trips to after conventions out of it and that was about all but uh, if it hadn't actually been for um it was i can't remember which came first it was either the leeds united game uh in semi-final uh, the european cup final in paris or it was cheltenham or combination of the two probably cheltenham north rugby club going away for um, a trip that took in the Wee's Beer Festival as well as organising a couple of games for them, where I saw, hang on, this is better, this is better business. And then 76, 77, 78, we, we started pushing into the that whole, um, particularly rugby, because I finished playing in 77, 70, yeah, 76, 77 at Gloucester, uh, but was then really pushing into... So then... Then the the a lot of the other clubs then everybody was jumping onto late seventies into eighties. You started off with Freddie Laker with uh, America then came into it, and North America, Canada, and USA opened up, and we sent lots of lots of rugby tours over there. You then had clubs like Leicester Tigers who would do some amazing um tours i remember the one one year we organized the leicester main tour didn't around main first team did an around the world tour all the way around sort of canada australia new zealand uh, and back through the far east um and then um, um they had um their second team went to where did they go? They went somewhere else. And then the juniors went to Florida or vice versa. But the three, the club did. But it was all part of a kind of a an idea to entice players to come and play for Leicester. And then that's what we then found, because I then got into the French market through, again, through my pal in, in Paris, who I got lots of introductions to. People, Stade Toulouse, um, Rugby Club, RC Toulon, uh, Brive, um, Stadboard, Les, Begler, La Rochelle, all, all racing, all of those used a rugby tour as, a, as a, a means to get players to come for them. And I remember um, 1980, 1981, 82, RC Toulon did, they did the most amazing tours, which, which we, I, we put together and arranged the games to really, they were jollies, but it was kind of an incentive to say, to top players, listen, you're going to get a trip around the world if you come and play for us. Because whilst the game was in France, it's never technically ever been amateur. You know, and I seem to remember about 13 members of the Toulon squad worked as gardeners for the mayor. 
time. Yeah. Um, but it, it was it, it acted as an incentive, and I would say, and there they had the great pal of mine, Daniel Herrero, charismatic coach um, with a bandana. He um, he was in charge over those years, and he always said to me, and I think if you look it up, 1980, 81, 82, or roughly those three years that they did a tour, they won the French Championship. But they would be the only rugby tour, now there was another one besides, who have actually sent to Machu Picchu. Now you don't wow. normally associate Machu Picchu in in Peru. Yes. A place for a rugby tour to go to, but took them across Lake Titicaca, up the other side, and uh, and, you know, and they played games in Buenos Aires and Rio, and but it, the, the business in France, and of course that then also helped with tickets for Paris and things like that because all the clubs got the tickets too so fantastic and in terms of the you you'd mentioned that there were no credit cards when you did the Leeds Bayern Munich final and, and clearly we take a lot of things for granted now with credit card and internet booking travel and it, 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 it's extremely simple process but how did you actually was everything over the telephone back then? How would you actually coordinate all the moving parts of a tour war trip? Well, well, back then you would send there'd be a brochure, and then inside the brochure was the booking form. So, I mean, the 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 Leeds one was a bit uh, uh, not like it was such short notice. There was nothing else to be done but to just take cash off them. You couldn't take checks off them. So. <laughs> Uh, but we, but with it, with a normal booking profile, they've they'd get the brochure. Inside there was the booking form. They send it off with a deposit, and be that would get them in the place. And then they would pay the deposit, pay the balance month, six weeks before departure. So uh, eventually, credit cards did come in, and we took credit cards. But but in the main, it was all it was paid by check. Yeah, John. When you started doing the tours that were going further afield, as opposed to Cornwall, Jersey, Isle of Man, and so on, and started to go to Canada and North America, did you take any high-profile players or or figures that we would know? Yeah, but we also used to do, you know, the, the small, lots of small club tours who went away to. Uh, to started going to USA and Canada in the early in the early eighties, and we had um, uh, Mike Burton were were with Gulliver's then. I played a bit at, at Gloucester with him. Mike was a great salesman, and he helped get the particularly the club stuff going. Uh, but I think one of those that springs to mind was Jesus College, um, Cambridge, who were going to USA and. Normally, with one of those tours like that, you would be a mix of motel stay and um, homestay with the local the local club. And I, I seem to recall it was they were going. We'd fix them. We'd got connections in North Carolina, and they were going there. And it was just normal run of the mill thing. One day, I get a call from a guy who says, "Oh, I'm from the Royal Diplomatic Security Corps, something like that." And I said, "Oh, yeah." I'm not even sure I knew that, and this was to do with Prince Edward, because Edward, Edward was playing for Jesus College at the time. And he said, look, you're organizing this tour for them. Um, we're going to have to send a couple of um, security guys 
but we also need to vet the families they're going to be staying with in USA, which you know normally we'd we'd never get. You know, you, team would roll up at a little town, get off the bus, and it was like, put your hand up, who wants this guy? You know, and sort of, and you everybody would get split out amongst uh, the club members for to go and stay with them. Um, so I had to start. Get it. I got on, got on to the the guys in America, and uh, it wouldn't have been too difficult. We would have, um, I think, we we got the information for them. But then, unfortunately, really, uh, for whatever I don't know, whatever reason, but um, Prince Edward dropped out, and I, I was just reminded of this when I saw the, you know, the royal funeral the other day. You able to tell us about the famous Gulliver's Big Pubs, which? Um, anyone that would have gone on the tours really became synonymous with uh, the global trips you took. Yeah, I guess one thing leads to another, and I'll move into Quinn's as an international match day facilitator, facilitator in around 1983, got us involved with a lot of the major marquee guys in, in, in the country. And when, so we were well set up when um, there was Paul Gleason and Don Webb at Air New Zealand, who really gave us our big first um, big um, event to to manage, and that was that Air New Zealand Rugby, Golden Oldies Rugby um, Festival in London. And, and, and as part of that, we needed to host two social events, of which, you know, one was a sit-down dinner for, for 5,000. And uh, I think I'd earlier mentioned, but we used a marquee contractor to fit out, in fact, the inside of a what was a, an old warehouse in the Royal Victoria docks uh, in London. So that, that was really our first big pub. Uh, and by 1991, for the Rugby World Cup in the UK, for which Gulliver's were the ILB's official tour operator, so we had all the tickets for, for that event to distribute basically worldwide. And we needed a, we wanted a place where the whole international rugby world could come together, and particularly for the Sammies, which were at Twickenham, and the final was at Twickenham. And so we went scouring around Europe for uh, the largest marquee we could find. And it, we found it in Holland, and we stuck that up on the, on the Harlequins ground, and it housed 12,000 international um, rugby fans, which was brilliant. Um, with um, rugby has an ability for all international fans to get together. Um, I'm not so sure football is the same way and you've got all that segregation. You have none of that segregation in rugby, which makes it the great the, the great game that it is. And those um, big pubs were great social, great social occasions and international people met each other, etc. Um, and, to, and we put entertainment on and, and what have you. But from there, the next Gulliver, Gulliver's Big Pub actually appeared in 19, after the, uh, would be 1993, where it was the Lions tour to New Zealand. And um, Mick Willamont and Duncan Garvey of Willamont Travel um, were allowed to build this um, scaffolding uh, right on the uh, corner of one corner of, of Athletic Park at um, at Wellington, where the line second test was going to be played, and it was a raised up platform, big area with with, um, with 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 a marquee on top. So 
all our lot actually watched the game, game from this great vantage area with bars on hand there, etc. And and that I guess was our the uh, was another one of those big events which was which stands out big social event. And then on the other side, of course, the cricket. Um, we 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 try to sort of emulate something similar and something like say the Ashes tour to um, Australia every uh, every time we did that for New Year's Eve we would charter one of those big Captain Cook um, cruise boats on the harbour in Sydney to see the new year in and they were always great events. Gulliver's Sports Travel was a business that was run primarily by your family and friends. Are you able to share some of your thoughts on the various integral roles that they all played at the business? Uh, I think I mentioned that I, I first went into a business with a, uh, with, with a guy called John Maycock. And, and that was really when we were sort of more catering and uh, pubs, uh, pub, the pub business. And then um, the, I, I really ran the travel business. But then later on, um, mid, you know, early 70s, um, my uh, John Davison was, um, who's, who's a Gloucester lad, he, he joined the, the company and he and then my brother David he he joined the company my sister had come down from Newcastle to run the travel agency so um and then she got married to John Davison so I had a brother-in-law in the business all the way through and a uh and my brother and each one sort of did very sort of crucial areas um but David was very much inbound operations bringing groups in from all over the world and um including actually moving to Cape Town to run all the operation for the Rugby World Cup in 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 South Africa in 95 when we ended up with about 75 staff in in the office there and then uh, and John John Davison he moved on later from the the catering business we had he came into the travel side and he did all the outbound side which was all the big tours all around the world as it all developed as as yeah, the, the the world started really opening up in the the late seventies and uh, into the eighties, which you know, we just we happened to be in the right place at the right time for, particularly in sports travel. Well, it 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 was it, we then became a, a tour operating business, and I can't remember where we there was a year we 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 moved from being just Gulliver's Travel to we became Gulliver's Sports Travel, but. We we then had as a tour operation dealing with groups. It's quite different to selling just Thompson's or Clarkson's holidays and uh, you know stuff like that to Ibiza and Mallorca, etc. Um, and instead, you were actually putting uh, you know made to measure tours for clubs. Clubs would say to us, "Well, we want to go to." There, well, it started off. You know, it was always it was the Channel Islands, the Isle of Man, even the just down to Cornwall and Devon and South Wales. But then everybody started wanting to go further afield, and then it moved into Europe, and that's where we started with the the got the contacts in Belgium, and then it was Amsterdam and and Paris, and and it, it kind of all grew. But but we needed people who could speak French to start with and and work and put these these tours together there were 
pretty simple. I mean, mostly bus tours at that time. You'd get on the bus on a Friday night somewhere or other, and you'd come back on Monday uh, from Amsterdam or Brussels or wherever it was. Um, and then from there, the thing got... Uh, we had Freddie Laker. We had a company called Jetsay started doing charters to America. And um, but But we... We had staff who really, when we got in with the supporters tours, they had to deal with, build a supporters tour to wherever it was, to to Australia, New Zealand. Uh, so we got up to 1980 as the first Lions tour we did to South Africa. And so the guys who worked on that in the office, had to, you know, they then went with the tours. So we had a, a lot of very good organized staff and it probably would be invidious to to single out any there but in sales and marketing all of it we had a, a really good bunch of guys and but one who kind of stands out and i'll only mention him because unfortunately um, he died very young a guy called paul rodwell who was was a plumber played for cheltenham civil service um but really good with people really good particularly taking welsh tours away get on a on a bus in clenethley swansea and pick up in newport cardiff and go to paris for the you know for a, a france wales game with them um and just really great relationship guy uh, and after a while he 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 said to me i, I want to i'm I'd really quite like to pack in this uh, plumbing business and and work for Gulliver's. So we, we gave him a job and he, Paul ended up in, in charge of uh, all our outgoing um, club tours, as, you know, particularly in, in Europe and lots of uh, the, the European stuff. And, um, but also mini rugby came on, basically came online and we started through, predominantly through his his organisation. We we did huge mini rugby Easter festivals at places like Ponton's Minehead. There were great things for for little little kids to to get into, and I think well, I mean we even ended up with the RFU allowed us to use Twickenham for a kind of a, a finals day uh, prior to the barbarians used to play somebody in may so all the, the a lot of the kids like the ultimate aim was to get to be able to play on twickenham and that 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 all happened through pretty well th developed through the 80s and paul did that and oddly enough his daughter Haley. then i will mention her she came and again um just a very organized girl who could who who worked really well with with Gulliver's and it was a great huge pity uh, unfortunately Roddy as he was known um, died um, too young. You became a master of corporate hospitality very quickly and, and some of the things that you did at Twickenham again showed how innovative you were in this space that a double-decker bus in the car park and then taking over a school how how did how have some of your memories with twickenham well i, I think that the main thing was that at twickenham the um the main man there was called the secretary not the ceo he was the secretary and he was air commodore bob wayhill lovely lovely chap and when the the first uh, it must have been about 78 
Um, I'd been at college with a with a guy. I, I went I went to agricultural college. You know, um, he likewise didn't go into anything to do with state management or agriculture. Um, he went. He got involved with double decker buses. Those ones you see at at the Derby, I think, um, they're lined up along the course there. And I think he'd been in touch with me, and he said, "Look, if you want one of my buses, I could bring him to Twickenham, and people can have a you know we've got cookers on board, and we've got a beer a beer pump." So somebody did uh, somewhere along the line. About a dozen guys wanted something like that. And I've got to say, there was nothing like that at Twickenham. I don't think even the word corporate hospitality hadn't been invented in 78. So simple, just okay, you, you buy a ticket for the uh, the North Car Park, as, as it was then, in which buses just, you, you drove in there with a the bus, you bought the ticket. So we took this one double-decker bus in there, had a great day. Um, the boys all on board had a, had a great day, great lunch, good few drinks, etc. Um, and the next year, that was 70, so 79, we, we then took three buses on there. And then uh, our two buses, I can't remember. And then uh, 1980, it was up to, um, it was up to uh, four or five buses. But then I got the call from the Air Commodore who was um he, he had a it was john uh, the committee wants to know what's going on on the north car park you're doing something giving people drinks and food and tickets and the committee want to know where are you getting the tickets from so at that time i was i was actually president of Tewkesbury rugby club I was 79, right? Yeah, I'd gone and helped the local little little club there a bit. And um, so I, I said, uh, well, I'll just get them through the club allocation, Bob. Oh, jolly good. Fine. I'll tell them that. So off he went. And that, that was about, um, that would be 79, I think. So we were okay. But then came through to 1980. And I got a similar call again from them. We were starting to do some work for the RFU. And I think we'd probably had four, five, six buses on the North Car Park. But he rang me again. It was the usual, John, I'm sorry, the balloon's gone up again. Committee want to know. The committee are not happy with what you're doing with this hospitality on the North Car Park. Um, and they, they told me, they've instructed me to tell you that you can't do both. You can't be our travel agent and do this other. You'll have to, he said, why don't you take it somewhere else? So I said, okay, Bob, you, okay, that's all right. He said, no, no, just take it somewhere else. Don't put it in on our, on the, on Twickenham. So this is where I went to see the headmistress of the of Chasebridge School. And she was up, I said, do you think I could park half a dozen double-decker buses in your school. And it's right next to the West Car Park. And she was, and I said, look, I'll pay, I've been paying, we're paying five pound for a parking pass over there. I'll pay you 10 pounds. And she was delighted, absolutely delighted. She said, oh God, my goodness, yes, please. So from about 81, we we put about, we put six double-decker buses, drove down, the, it's right next to the West Car Park there. And did that. And then, of course, penny drops, thinking, 
hang on, there's a big, we've got a big playground here. We're, why don't we put a tent up? And I'm absolutely positive at that stage, there was no, nothing that, and then it was the word corporate hospitality actually to the RFU as an amateur body was anathema. I mean, you know, it just didn't like, yet you look to see what, what Twickenham is now. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely corporate hospitality. In, in 83, the, that was when they said, you can't, you can't be doing both jobs. They are, you, are, you drop that or you drop doing the travel business for us. And at that time, to be honest, we had a, um, Mike Burton was working, had been working for us for six years. Uh, he started in 77, because I play, I played rugby with Mike a, a little bit at Gloucester, um, just at the end of my, my time. And he, of course, had played all his time at Gloucester. He, um, he said he would take it on. So I sublet the Chasebridge School to him, and he went on with, with, with his career uh, in that direction. We, as it, as it happened later on, got back into the hospitality business because, I mean, it's, it's, it's all closely associated with the travel thing. So we would do, for example, in Hong Kong, we had a big, big marquee thing for the nine, particularly 1997 um, event for the people who went, all our clients who went over there. Um, and then we, we actually bought a company called Events International in that was about very much later on who are still quite a, a major part of uh, uh, hospitality business john you've told me uh, socially before about a story involving uh, neil kinnock and blackrod and, and access to tickets are you able to articulate that that story for us well that <laughs> that one goes back to um i think 1978 when um we had started running bus tours because one of the main the big things we started with was what well, was France Wales and England Wales. So we, if it was the England Wales game at Twickenham, we would put buses on Clenethley, Swansea, Cardiff, Newport, pickup up to London on a Friday afternoon um, and into the Regent Palace on Piccadilly, which was a Trust House 40 hotel back in those days. Um, and because I had a means of, of, of getting tickets, but back in those days, the RFU had no rules about what, what you, a club did with their tickets. And I think by 78, I, I, actually, I was president of Tewkesbury Rugby Club. And so I could get tickets and there wasn't the huge demand. And there were lots of clubs about who, who needed a roof fixing or something like that um, in return for tickets so i i could i had a supply of tickets but we would put them with a two-night package at the region palace hotel and i think in 1978 it cost 36 pounds for the bus trip up two nights bed and breakfast in the region palace out to the game ticket for the game and um in the week leading up to the game or the week before um, I got this call and I had a great relationship with old Air Commodore Bob Wayhill, who was the secretary of the RFU at that time. A lovely man. He'd been a, um, a fighter pilot during World War Two in the RAF. Um, and I got on really, really well with him. But when things kind of like 
went skew with a bit for him. Um, he, he would call me up, as I think I mentioned about the whole hospitality business game. And this this time he rang me up and um, and John, the it was always the, the balloon's gone up again. Um, I've had a call from Black Rod. And I'm thinking, okay, for Black Rod, who's Black? It's Black Rod has got a Welsh MP called Kinnock who is raising questions in the house about how is it he cannot get a ticket for the game at Twickenham this weekend or next weekend um, and uh, unless he buys a, a package from a travel agency in Tewkesbury and uh, he, 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 wa he wants an investigation into how tickets are allocated. So I said to him, oh, Bob, I'm, I'm president of Tewkesbury Rugby Club. I, you know, I get the tickets through, through the club. And it was about, oh, jolly good. That's, I, oh, that's all good. I'll, I'll tell Black Rod that then. And anyhow, this, this whatever happened, it actually, I'm told it's in Hansard. And I know there was an article, there used to be an article in the Telegraph on a day called Peterborough. And they, he wrote about little sketches about what happens in the House of Commons. But old Neil Kinnock, and it, it got up and great waves, shall we say. But, um, didn't hear any more about it. It was all bloody good publicity, really. I know that the South Wales Echo got hold of it. They did a story about it, but it didn't really matter. So, John, whilst getting involved in helping place players with clubs and Gulliver's handling the travel for England, British Lions and other organisations, you must have also got to know a lot of the top players at the time. Yes, well, you're right. And... Um, Prior to the game going pro in 1995, it was probably a lot easier to do that. Um, we did have occasion to help playing squads, perhaps earn a little bit of spending money by some interaction with our supporters groups. And of course, our supporters groups loved all that. But one, one of those particularly sticks out in my mind was during the 1993 Lions tour to New Zealand, when I put a little wheeze to Gavin Hastings, the captain, and uh, Dean Richards, his right-hand man, um, that the, what we did, um, the whole squad took an afternoon off in their Auckland Hotel ballroom. We set it up like for a team picture with, you know, um, stacked up in the ballroom, and there they stood. I mean, the ones on the back ones were quite high up, and they stood there for two hours. I mean, can you imagine that? Having, having any professional team do that these days. And what happened was Gavin left a seat either side of him empty as captain, holding the ball in the, in the middle of the, in all in their Lions gear, the whole squad. And uh, we just brought in um, guys who'd um, put their name down, wanted to have a picture taken with the with British Lions squad. And we had a, a snapper there who just, had to set the whole picture up, click, 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 in, out, in, out. And this went on for about um, you know, two hours plus, probably more. And the boys just standing there having the, and I, I mean, you just, you wouldn't get them, them doing it these days, but um, at a hundred dollars a photo, the, the guys got a little bit of, a bit more of their subsistence contribution, because that's all they got. They only got, I think about 40, 50, 
quid a day as their living allowance from from the lions. Uh, there was nothing. Uh, this was all pre-professional days. And uh, our clients got something to treasure for life. And, and also, if I think about it, just another area was, and without naming names, I got involved in, I seem to get involved in, the, I know that the honeymoons and movements of various players, partners um, around, the, around the world, um, the, the captains of France, England, and Scotland. Um, because the game was was amateur then, as I said, um, the mo most of these international players would do hospitality appearances for us, basically in return for free flights. So that's what I'd I'd they say look, we've got a honeymoon on or whatever it was, and um, uh, any chance I'll you know I'll I'll do a hospitality appearance for you, and that that was the, the way to do it. Excellent. Have you got a photo yourself with with the ninety five squad? There is one. Yes, I. In fact, uh, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> I think um, I think they gave me that for free. So, Wonderful. Excellent memento. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so how did that work after the WRU had specifically said Gulliver's couldn't remain as your official travel agent unless you gave away the hospitality you used to do at the Chase Bridge School site? Well, the first thing is, I know you're a, a Welshman. It wasn't the WRU, it was the RFU. It was the Sorry, RFU. Let me yeah, yes, yeah. the RFU said, um, gave us an ultimatum in, in as I, like I've earlier mentioned, in 1983, <clears throat> that we um, had to choose between being a travel agent or, um, for them, uh, uh, and and not do this corporate hostility thing because it was still to the RFU at that time anathema to a lot of the guys there. This whole commercial idea. This is 1983, um, and so we we I, I handed that over to Mike Burton basically the the Chase Bridge facility. But as you know, there's that saying: when one door closes, another opens. So at about the same time, around 1983, the Harlequins Club, which is just across the road from HQ, um, asked us if we could help them in, in basically trying to gain more use of their grounds. You know, they've got a big, big parking area. They got, in fact, the, the main ground. And then I think there were two reserve, reserve um, playing fields. Um, and you've got to remember, a club like Harlequins, whilst they were a big club then, they probably only had a couple of employees. One would have been the guy cutting the grass, the groundsman, and uh, perhaps the head barman. And the you know the club was was basically run by the by the amateur committee. So, so I did a deal for um, a fixed amount each year with Quinns that Gulliver's would take over the run in the car park and fill the ground with as many marquees as we could get on the site, and that was for basically for all international match days at Twickenham. And it, because there was this burgeoning, growing corporate hospitality industry out there, and it, uh, it just across the road from Twickenham, it was a, it was a perfect venue. But as I say, we didn't do any of the. We came out of doing actual the hospitality ourselves, so um, it, it, instead we became the facilitator for others, and that included fixing up some of the star players, you know, to make appearances uh, at though in those venues. But that that Quinn's contract went on for 
about 16 years. And uh, in fact, the next door sort of spare bit of ground was Richmond College, and they had a big um, playing field there. And we 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 took that over on a, 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 for a lot of the games as well. So that that whole the, there was a new venture, the whole Harlequin things for us. talk about Hong Kong and the South Stand obviously anyone that would have been that the song Sweet Caroline which now seems to have been taken over to a degree by English football and the Lionesses they, they've taken something that was big in the 70s and 80s in yeah. rugby sevens but are there any other songs that resonate with you or bring back memories of some of the rugby tours and trips you took around the globe? Yeah, I mean, my my music is um, probably not well suited to, to that. So I'm a blues music. Uh, my favourite band is the band, um, but not really suited to um, sports stadia. But I actually did think Rugby World Cup in 87 did get um, World and Union, which was basically music taken from hosts, the, the planets, I think. And um, Terry Tikanawa, um, the Kiwi, did a, a very good version of that. I mean, it's more, it's quite classical. Um, well, it is classical. Um, and but that, that I've, I've got, because you're right, Sweet Caroline is just it's football clubs, it's the whole lot. But it, it was nicked from Hong Kong, I think. Uh, Hong Kong Sevens was the first place. And I've got to say, with Cathay as the um, sponsor, main sponsor for, for a lot of that time, a lot of music came from Cathay adverts on the TV, which people knew. And uh, I can't, yeah, Don't Stop Me, Queen, of course, was yeah. was was one of them. I mean, and yeah, it's, that's another regular one too. John, you you mentioned the, the the gentleman coming from Cathay and you putting together packages, and I think the first year. You, you said you'd sent 40 travellers and then it, it obviously ran into thousands after that. What, what was the Hong Kong experience like? And you'd mentioned some of the key hotels as well, like the Excelsior and some of the backdrops that they played for that, that sevens weekend as it grew. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like to think that we actually sort of helped develop um, a lot of that stuff for, for hotels like the Excelsior, which sadly is no more with us i'm told it's a hole in the ground over there now but it, but it was a wonderful hotel because it was within walking distance of the of of, of the, the old stadium and the new stadium i think we only had one or two years in the the old original stadium then they built the new one um but it had the hotel had the dickens this dickens bar with lots of sporting rugby memorabilia in it and there, there were just great people running the different general managers who were there um, and they learned, you know, they did really well out, out of the sevens um, but I think we there's there've been hotels around the world that we we've got hold Gulliver's have got hold of and then I guess other our competitors also want to try to get in there but that's the Gulliver's base you know so had to would kind of say look after us a bit um, but people wanted to be in the excelsior and it did develop like that so in sydney for example or well, in auckland there was the what were the regent hotels there were two the best hotels 
in, in Auckland and Sydney, later to become Four Seasons. And um, we, for the, the Rugby Lions Tours, Rugby World Cup, they, they became our kind of regular headquarter hotels. And um, I remember, I mean, the Four Seasons in 2003, after the World Cup um, England win, was just a magnificent experience after the game. And I write, the, the, it's got this huge lobby, but it was just full of England fans, joyous, and somebody got on the piano, and this went on. And they, they were great. I mean, it went on till about five, six o'clock in the morning. And some England players sort of calling in, looking in, and what occasionally, every, you know, every now and again. But I have to say, we, Gulliver's always went for more upmarket hotels. So we never... And I always thought we, we didn't go out there just to be the cheapest operator. And I, th I think a lot of people actually like that. We, we, people would look at, oh, this brochure here, I can, I can go to Hong Kong Sevens and it, it's 200 pound less than Gulliver's. Great, um, but you wouldn't get the same experience as, as being on ours, particularly where we had guys, some of our tour, the guys who would come with us with like, particularly Gareth Chilcott. Um, uh, Coochie's such a, a great guy with, with people, and he, he genuinely enjoys meeting and talking to people. And when he finished playing, I think he went on the Lions tour to Australia 87, and he's, I think he started not long after that with, with, with Gulliver's. But prior to that, I mean, it's just not possible now that that you would get somebody like a Johnny Wilkinson or um, any of these guys, these guys now going as a tour leader. I mean, I, I, if I recall the the 1983 Lions tour to New Zealand, um, Gareth Edwards, um, Phil Bennett, um, Chairman of World Rugby Bill Beaumont, um, who were and then the most charismatic, the best, really, Ray Gravel. Just Grav used to, he was another one who just loved people. Sadly, not, not with us anymore. Wonderful pal. Um, but we used to give those guys, like, um, we'd give them £45 a day um, spending money. And they would, and they could take their wives or whatever they wanted to do. Um, and that was it. But I mean, the, the thing is now, I mean, you can understand it. The, the likes of Johnny Wilkinson are never going to jump on a bus for a month on the road with a bunch of supporters. Um, but we're lucky in that respect. That, that was there for us to, to utilise, if you like. And, that was uh, the, the success of the sporting ambassadors. So, so then when people would be looking at your adverts, I'm guessing it's not just then the, the flights, the hotel, the tickets, but you've added the that money can't buy experience by having Sir Gareth yes. Edwards and the likes that that they will not only get to see at a brief question question and answer session, they'll genuinely be able to have a holiday experience with them. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Dine with them, drink with them, um, and and we we put their their mug shots all over the, the brochures. You know, the, if you're going on, we I remember in nineteen uh, nineteen. 83, that Lions tour. We had one tour called the Westerner, which went over Los Angeles, Fiji. We had another one called the Easterner. So we, we give the tours a name. 
and the Easterner who went through Bangkok, Bali, um, down to New Zealand and, and, and back sort of that way. But you would put on Gareth, Phil, um, their pictures, Bill Beaumont, um, Alan Phillips was another one, did a lot with us, Grav. Um, they, they were great ambassadors, but, but they did everything that the, the fans did as well. They did all the same stuff. I think what helped a lot was that in those days, a lot of those guys managed then to get a little bit of, of um, media work um, when they were out there. You know, the media people, the BBC or ITV or whoever it was, wouldn't actually pay for them to go out there. So they said to them, look, if you get out there, we'll, we'll put you on the, on the telly, on the radio, or whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> and so that kind of worked out quite well for them. But this this was all in the old, good old amateur days. Are you able to talk about some of the early efforts with your fellow tour operators, companies like Travel2, Travelbag, Trailfinders and others to, to the Southern Hemisphere, where you were really trying to promote and grow long haul travel in uh, both directions? Absolutely. And, and we used to get a lot of um, back then. I. I don't know whether, I mean, it, it, it was a bit of a novelty. So people like the Hong Kong Tourist Board were, were brilliant for, for us. And yeah, I knew them all, the guys running their ATE, the Australian Tourist um, Commission, doing their um, Australian Travel Exchange, I think that's what that stood for, in, in a city in Australia. And Qantas or whoever would come in with, with free flights down there for, for us. So they wanted us down there to um, to promote the country, and this was all during the time when Australia, New Zealand was was opening up, was really opening up. You know, just though, um, and the, you know, not many people were going to Australia. I mean, now people just go down there for a weekend and almost, you know. But but it was, it, and it was a great camaraderie actually amongst all all the boys from the the the. The other companies, as you said, like like um, Travel Two um, and Trail Finders, old Mike Gooley and uh, his his gang, and uh, amongst us all, it, and they were after the mainstream tourism travel bit. Ours was more specialist, so they didn't really stray into getting into sports travel as such you know so we we all got on well there were great events i mean you know uh, wonderful trips down there which you know, uh, i miss a bit now but yeah yeah and then the mid 80s you started to to get involved with cricket so you started to do the ashes was yeah. that similar to rugby in that it 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 really built over a number of years because obviously we look at it now with the Barmy Army and Boxing Day tests and it probably recent memory always thinks that there were thousands of people, but I'm guessing it started a lot smaller. It started, it, it started very small with, um, and I think then again uh, with an individual, with uh, Mike Dennis. Mike came in and helped us, you know, did went on the, the tours with us. Uh, as did um, Bob Willis, great, great cricketers. And I, th I think particularly in cricket, that it's more, um, it's more technical, you know, and you get 
cricketers who the supporters they go with their their scorebooks and you know they follow the tests and fill it in and but they just love talking to people like Mike Dennis and and Bob Willis I'm trying to think some of the other guys but but again they all meshed in together and it was the fact that I don't think anybody was doing it before we it, it was a natural progression from from the rugby and we uh, which le eventually led us to getting um well we had a 10-year contract with the ICC uh, for all all major cricket events like world cups women's world cups for, for doing the logistics well that's um and it, it it became a major part of our operations you mentioned freddie laker in the us and uh Clearly, it was part of the the rugby tours of, of of clubs going over there. But you you then in the when the US hosted the World Cup in 1994, I think you bought a business the year before or established a business the year before that allowed you to be again a, a major contributor and player in the US World Cup. Yeah, in I think because through the 94 through. Through the 80s, we, well, we, so 87 was the first Rugby World World Cup. No, that's right. 87 was the first Rugby World Cup. We uh, we did that uh, officially. Then 91, we were the main one in the UK. So we, we did all the distribution of the tickets for that, pointed travel agents around the world, did the whole sort of inbound travel operation, hotel bookings, etc. for them. Um, and then I guess the US Soccer Federation were looking for somebody to do their football World Cup in, in, 90, in 94. And um, we were already taking rugby tours over there at that time. And somewhere along the line, um, I've had a, 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 part, a, a part business partner who, John Lane, who uh, he'd been down Australia. He'd started sending football, school football groups from Australia to the UK. That's how it worked. And then eventually he thought we should talk to the US Soccer Federation. And he, he did it all. And lo and behold, of course, back then, there's, there's nobody in USA who really understands soccer, as they called it. And uh, so they wanted... They wanted somebody to that got logistics experience for sporting events, so we said, "Well, we'll open, we'll open an office in Los Angeles," and that was in '93. We did that, and John John ran all that. He was responsible for for all of that, and he he again he was a former. He played for Malmo football. He's a foot, he's a Brummy. He's a foot football. He he played a bit of sort of semi-pro soccer. Um, and we got the operation running over there, but we did the did the whole. He did the distribution of the tickets. I think it was about one hundred and twenty-five thousand tickets. We had to distribute worldwide because in those days you'd appoint agents around the world who, at the same time, so they'd get so many tickets and they would send uh, tour groups to to the USA. Um, so that that got us 
that got us more into, into USA. And that, that business, John is still actually running it, but it's now connected to US soccer, uh, sorry, US rugby, um, and working with them again. So, uh, uh, and I still have a little bit of an interest in that. We'll probably jump ahead to soccer, but with regards to the inaugural Rugby World Cup in New Zealand in 1987, and all the subsequent ones that took part when you, when you were leading Gulliver's Sports Travel, it, it was an official partner all the way through. Is that correct? It certainly was for, um, well, 87 it was, um, which was Australia New and New Zealand. Um, and so 91 was UK. And we were the, the main operator for that one. Uh, and then 95, South Africa. Um, I mean, that was the interesting one. Um, in 93, they'd, apartheid was sort of coming apart. And I think uh, Nelson Mandela was released round about that, at that time. But the IRB asked us, they, South Africa had been in the wilderness tourism-wise for 20 years. And they felt they needed a company with logistical experience. And we had done that in 91 for the Rugby World Cup. So they said to us, would you set up an office in South Africa and handle all the logistics for us? So those logistics means that mean that you have to they'll give us the dates of the of the games the main the main games and then you've basically got to block out hotels to cover if you work backwards from the final so you've got four teams in a final because of the the playoff so they each got to have a separate hotel each you then have um the um the, the IRB family which is about 150 rooms family which is all the, the presidents and CEOs of every rugby union around the world. Um, you've then got um, the sponsors to, to block out rooms for, you've got the media, and then you've got the, the fans. So to do this before it was, the, the dates were released, we we flew down with, I went down with a, with a bunch of our guys and basically hit Johannesburg, Cape Town, Port Elizabeth, Durban, and we had it all set out in a, in a grid of all the hotels and literally went door knocking and um, and said, look, we've got a group coming down here next year. W would you be interested in taking them? Um, we need 100 rooms or 150 rooms or whatever it is. Absolutely delighted. Um, so can you can you we lock this in now, please? And. Um, I think we gave it, um, I'm not sure what kind of reference name we gave them, but basically it was for Rugby World Cup 95. And we did all that. Everything was in place. And in April 94, they had the, they had the elections in, uh, for, and I was, we were on a family holiday in Fiji at the time. I got a call from the IRB at the time. Um, to say, John, we're a bit concerned about the elections in South Africa. And um, we uh, we need to have a, a, a backstop in case things go wrong. Uh, and we've decided that the, we'll, if, it, if it all does go wrong, 
we'll immediately come out with an announcement that it's it's being postponed in South Africa for four years, um, and instead it's it will go to New Zealand. So the plan was they gave me all the dates and they said that this has to be done under strict confidence. Um, we we can't uh, we can't have this leaking out to the media for obvious reasons. So they said, can you make a plan? So I called a pal of mine in, in New Zealand um, at the Four Seasons, what was the Regent Hotel or Four Seasons Hotel as it is now. And he helped to put the whole thing together with other hoteliers in New Zealand. And not a word came out. So it was sitting there all, and all we did was just for the final was Auckland, semi-finals were, well, I think we're going to be uh, Auckland and Wellington, and then quarterfinals were Auckland, Wellington, um, Dunedin, and Christchurch. That that was it. So we only did that. We only did that bit, and uh, the elections came and went, and everything was great. Um, so they IRB called me. Do you think you could thank your people in New Zealand and just stand up came out and uh, it was um, yeah, it was interesting times it was it had been some job if we'd then had to pull out of South Africa um, but we did 95 and we had an office in Cape Town with about 75 staff in by the time of the World Cup in 95 but we then we kept that office there till 99 and we as part of that, I know we did some other events. Oh, we had, we had the lines, the lines there in ninety nine, no ninety seven, ninety seven. The lines were there, but we also did because one of the other things we were involved in were gold noldies rugby, and we, uh, which was one of the first big events we actually did was nineteen eighty five in London, the gold noldies rugby festival, and we had about between four and five thousand people came in, and. Veterans rugby in Australia and New Zealand is much, much bigger than the UK. And we had teams like the Wagga, Wagga Blue Healers from Australia. And, and of course, they come with the wives and the girlfriends and uh, much more of a family thing. So they're quite large groups. And New Zealand, the Glenfield Grizzlies, all of these teams. And we spread, we did this event for Air New Zealand in London. So that that was 1985, and I think we did we did one in Cape Town as well. When we had the office there as well, so that that, that they they were all big events. We did cricket golden oldies, we did netball golden oldies. That was another one. Hockey golden oldies. We did in Holland for Air New Zealand. We did golden oldies rugby Toulouse in France. So we were just up pitch our tent down in Toulouse or The Hague or where it is and away we'd go. The staff all loved it, getting you know, things like the Football World Cup, Soccer World Cup in USA. We moved quite a number of the staff from Tewkesbury to Los Angeles and they all worked all over the States. So it was quite an interesting job for the, for the staff. Fantastic. Was, was the London event at Twick held at Twickenham? That we had an opening um, event uh, traditionally had to have um, where the teams come onto the pitch and, and, and they do a, a march around. And I mean, there must have been, I don't know, 50, 60, 50 teams there and they're all in their, their um, 
different types of gear. And I, I know that there was, I forget the name of the team from Perth, Western Australia, but they came in, you know, they, they'd got um, white suit, white overalls with arrows on them, i.e. convict and dragging a plastic um, <laughs> chain <laughs> with a ball, metal plastic ball around with them. It's all just a lot of fun. But we they did we did the opening thing there. But all the rest of it we we allocated. I think we had uh, they went out and played the games in London Irish Richmond Hartford Rugby Club. They came into it. Um, I think London Welsh Isha Rugby Club. Um, sort of just spread out. Um, it, it, I'm not sure how Golden Oldies rugby goes these days, but. Um, they were wonderful, great events. John, I understand that, that 2005, following on from the success of the Lions in 2001 and the England World Cup win in 2003, demand obviously went through the roof. Um, are you able to tell us what that led to and, and how you managed to secure accommodation and, and logistics for, for such a large upswing and uptick in demand? Yeah, well, uh, you're absolutely right, Gareth. I mean, we used to have so many clients who would advance register with us on a four-year kind of period. So as soon as one lines tour was over, they wanted to advance register again for the other one. So after 2001 in Australia, that was um, where we, we took a lot down there. Uh, they, many of them advance register for for the next one, 2005, in, in New Zealand. And, of course, we did Rugby World Cup 2003 in Australia, and with England winning, uh, it kind of produced a whole new range of rugby fans who who wanted to, who liked the idea of going off on long rugby tours. So for New Zealand, early on, I could see that the race for hotels in New Zealand particularly around the three test venues, which were would have been Christchurch, Wellington, Auckland, was going to be intense. And even though we probably had a, the best reputation for coming up with the goods for lots of, uh, with lots of the New Zealand hotels, cities like Christchurch and Wellington just didn't have enough rooms to cater for the full Lions support or invasion. The, the only option really over that then was either long coach trips in and out in the day or to do fly-ins for the day from other cities, particularly Auckland. However, that had an issue because Wellington Airport had a, a nighttime curfew. So that, that would have made it quite, quite difficult. Um, anyhow, it didn't actually take too much time to work out that the solution had to be something... Um, maritime and uh, to go looking for a cruise liner and everybody you know I and mean, there's lots of cruise liners in the world but that they tend to go where the sun's shining and British Lions tours don't go where the sun shines very often well certainly not in the uh, the Oz NZ kind of area but I found that we did have two boats with P&O there were two P&O had two ships that went in and out of Sydney, generally up the uh, to Fiji and the other Pacific Islands, um, as well as up the east coast of, of Queensland. So we got on to them. Um, fortunately, we started negotiating 
well before the P&O publicised, the public brochure was put out for 2005. So got the job, got the deal in place, a um, couple of million, I think it was quite a lot, a, a big thing to take on. Um, had the bank guarantees in place and we got 1,800 births on um, Pacific Sky. Um, from the week before the first test at Christchurch until after the third test at Auckland. Um, and it made absolute perfect sense, moving people from test venue to test venue. It's a great way of doing it. You get on the boat, you don't have to close your suitcase, get off, move on somewhere else. And the, the actual itinerary itself, I mean, we started um, down at the... Um, the can't remember the Christchurch port anyhow from Christchurch went up to Picton the top of the North Island um, and because we had a we put everybody into Cloudy Bay in Marlborough in the Marlborough vineyards for a fantastic day there and then across to uh, to Wellington and we the where we could actually moor right in the center where the main sort of social area in Wellington is is Courtney Place and we were right there uh, then on up the east coast with a stop at the uh, Deco Napier, up to the Bay of Islands, and then back there, and then finishing in Auckland. Um, it was a lot of fun, and probably it goes down in the history of Gulliver's as probably the uh, one of our major feats, along with the the 1997 Line 747 that we took to Cape Town with um, with Air Namibia. Um, but, uh, well, it was a great project. Uh, of course, it wasn't without its dramas. Um, it started off, really, I suppose. I wanted the staff to work on the ship, uh, who were working on the ship, to know a bit about what they were, they were selling. So we organised to take a bunch of us down to, um, down to Brisbane to have a go on the ship, in fact. And P&O gave us um, a few days for about half a dozen of us. And um, so they included some training in the couple of million that you were paying for the ships. Uh, well, the, the, all of that was included in it, yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But it, it's a heck of a lot easier on people that when you're trying to sell a cruise ship uh, and you know what it's like, you know, where the bars are, the restaurants, um, all manner of things. And um, we took this four-day cruise from Brisbane, which was going up the East Coast through the Whitsundays. And on about the third day, we realised the ship had stopped, or rather it was drifting. And um, sure enough, it, uh, it had got a mechanical problem and about um, uh, drifted for about 24 hours. <laughs> so getting a little bit concerned. And... Eventually, it limped into Cairns, and we missed our flight back, but didn't really matter. But we, um, there was clearly um, something seriously wrong with it, and it, became, it did become apparent it was a major issue. And um, Sky was put into dry dock in um, in Brisbane. Uh, uh, to await a big spare part that they had to air freight down from Chicago. Um, the part had to be made first. 
and as time went by, it just became clearer and clearer. Pacific Sky wasn't going to be ready for us. So I've got to say the Pacific, the uh, P&O guys in Sydney were great about it. And whilst they they got this other, their other boat, Pacific Sun, was already brochured, already out on, supposed to be on um, cruises. Um, they cancelled all those and they gave us, they gave us that boat instead, which, to be honest, was actually a little bit better than Pacific Sky as well. So, actually, when it came then came round to picking up the boat, this bloody great big thing, uh, we all about again the the main crew who are going to be working on the ship. Um, we flew to Numia in the in the Pacific, and um, we boarded. Pacific Sun there when all the other they got unloaded all their passengers at that point and um, we we had a, like a two two day sail on an empty just us on on this big cruise liner from Namia um, to Auckland and we went into Auckland first because the boat was fitted out with all Aussie beer taps and lager etc and uh, so we we had to make sure that we got English, English and Irish beer, if you want, on board there. But we'd um, so we'd had we had lined up to change all the taps in Auckland, put Guinness taps, um, Boddington, Strongbow, and I always remember we had a, a, a supply of Weston's vintage cider was put on board. So that was all done in Auckland, and then we carried on down the. Um, to um, Littleton, which was the port for Christchurch in the South Island, and where we we were in the day before. And the next day, all the flights started coming in, and we loaded about fifteen hundred, I think, passengers um, straight from the UK straight on on onto the ship. And uh, I, I mean, there were we've got lots of great memories of it because it was it was just like one great floating rugby clubhouse with we had lots of rugby celebrities from all the four countries on board the likes of Ian McGeekin who'd capped them aside I'd played in against the All Blacks in 72 Ray Gravel of course the irrepressible Moss King from Ireland and Jason Leonard to keep Coochie company and lark around with the passengers and in fact I have one abiding memory of heading to my cabin one night around two in the morning and running into a long conga Conga on the main deck, led by Jason and Coochie, all crawling on their knees with a train of uh, uh, loads of the other guys behind them, going up, up the up the, um, the 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 side of the boat, and um, as as we steamed up the coast of New Zealand. But there was one other memory I do also remember was going into actually into Wellington, and. I was on the deck with the captain and um, I got a phone call and it was from McCleary of the Daily Telegraph, who was um, part of our media group, staying at a hotel right opposite where we were due to birth. And he, he came on, he said, are you on that bloody boat hall that's now blocking my wonderful view? <laughs> uh, can't you take it somewhere else? <laughs> um, anyhow, it, it, the, the whole thing, that it was the boat was the first one that I think it's ever been done for uh, certainly for a lines tour 
that's been done since in Rugby World Cup um, 2011. They had there were several down there. Um, uh, great, great experience. Magnificent, John. Clearly, when you move organising these events, John, not, uh, in in frontier countries as well that don't necessarily have the infrastructure, like when you had to go to South Africa and put a lot of things in place. There's clearly the potential for for things to go wrong and not always to go like clockwork. Are, are there any tough times or challenges that that came up at short notice that you needed to overcome? Ooh, yeah. Well, al obviously alcohol heavily involved as well, and, and human beings. So so not things you could always have contingencies for. No, they're they're anything like that business has has some downsides and some of it um well let's say south africa for for a start i think during the the world cup we decided we'd between the semi-finals i think in cape town and and durban we we moved a lot of people from uh, back up to johannesburg but we decided to use four trains with sleeper cars, first class sleeper cars from Cape Town. It was a two night journey on a train from Cape Town. Anyhow, in the preceding days, I think there'd been a strike. There had been a railway strike. And the first I knew about it was I got a call um, the night before and said, look, can you come to the marshalling yards of the railways six o'clock next morning when we were due to have these four trains leaving Cape Town station one after another to, to go up to Pretoria and the basically what had happened because of the strike they hadn't got the equipment in the right place so they're in the marshalling yards they're trying to sort of pull what they call their consists together to make trains up that were, were usable but they didn't have any first class compartments or bar cars so we ended up saying, look, there they were saying, we'll put trestle tables in. There was like a big, if you imagine, a big carriage, but nothing in it. They said, look, we'll put, we'll put um, trestle tables in here. We've got all this white plastic garden furniture, seats we'll put in, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make a bar of that. So I felt we had to warn them everybody and as each bus came in one after another and I think there was somewhere between a thousand and twelve hundred people going on these four trains so they're coming in by bus I had to get on each bus get on the microphone and just say folks we got a bit of a problem today this isn't going to be what you're expecting um, it's um, because of all the problems but um, you know, give it, give it a go. And most, most did, but the worst aspect of it was the heating wasn't working on the train and going on, on any of the, on either, any of the four trains, the heating wasn't working and going across the Karoo that first night, you know, absolutely frozen. And, but, you know, some of them like Coochie in the bar car, this bar car with white garden furniture, pouring the drinks, you know, all on the house, etc. But it really wasn't, they didn't expect it to be the blue train, but
but it was expected to be of a, a better standard. So after the first night on board, I, I, I knew that there was going to be there, there were there were issues and because uh, the, the guys were in contact with me who were in charge of the groups and uh, I, I just remember actually just before going on there the one of the trains I have this vision of this train pulling out of the station and suitcases coming out of the windows landing on the platform guys clambering out because they decided we're not going to go on this just as it started moving anyhow <laughs> We we took them back to a hotel and we put them on a we put them on a plane up to Johannesburg. But what I did with the train after the, the first night, we stopped it at a place called Potrifstrom, and overnight I managed to get hotel rooms at Sun City and enough buses to move them all from Potrifstrom to Sun City into into a hotel instead of a, a second night. So I mean, yeah, that I mean that was difficult and it was costly as well to do the whole thing because we weren't going to get anything back from the South African railways. Um, and then I, we also, on a Six Nations one, there was a really, really bad one. Because what we used to do, um, this was for a Wales-France game in Cardiff in early 80s. So we used to the French agents who we used to work with by uh, at that time, they they would give us business inbound if we could find the rugby tickets for Cardiff. So what we did, we we would charter an aircraft and would do. So you had to get use a, a, an aircraft from London. So we had one of Freddie's DC tens, three hundred and forty five seats, which typically would go out of Gatwick in the morning, nine o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning, and we would take to, it would go to Paris, and we would load it with just cheap weekenders going to Paris, even some rugby clubs, we'd, um, English rugby clubs would just go on, on a rugby tour to Paris. The aircraft in, then in Paris would pick up its first main load of French supporters, 345 French, fly Paris to Cardiff, drop them off, and then from Cardiff, go down to Toulouse, but we would fill it up with Welsh rugby clubs and, and any others. And basically we'd give them a, a, a tour, a little weekend break in the southwest of France, Toulouse, a rugby tour in return for that match ticket. God, a lot of, lot of you know, the, the, the little clubs in Harris and Abergavenny or wherever, um, used to used to love it, you know, because they'd get an allocation of tickets for the games, they'd give the tickets to us, we'd give them a weekend in the south of France. Those tickets, we would then pass on and the cost of whatever it was to the, the French supporters coming in. So anyhow, this this aircraft all went well, went Gatwick to, to Paris, picked up the, the uh, Parisian supporters, brought them into Cardiff, when the plane landed at Cardiff, it burst a tyre, ah. this DC-10. So it's not the sort of tyre you have lying around Cardiff Airport all the time. So Laker had to, they had to get a private plane to bring in a new tyre. And this plane was parked up in front of the, um, the, term, in the terminal building. So you could see it there with, with the flat, it had limped in with the flat tyre. 
and all the all the time all the welsh boys were waiting there and they're already on the on the pints and you can imagine what you know as time went on so this eventually a little plane flies in with a spare tire and um it, it was all a bit laughable because you could see this and they got a jack for to lift the the, the plane leg up and it it wasn't it wasn't lifting it high enough yeah so you could see this and i mean all the boys were they were quite happy because they were all having a pint or two and they weren't too bothered but time went on went on and um i think eventually they got away sometime middle of the sort of late afternoon they should have been away midday or something like that it was probably about six o'clock or something and but I always remember that as part of it we had a, a group of nuns on this same plane 30 and we'd put them right at the front of the plane but you can imagine with it and they were on a they we'd organized a weekend in Lourdes for the for the nuns to nice cheap weekend get down to Lourdes and the rugby teams it, it was all great in great spirit there was there was no major issue plane takes off five hours six hours late from Cardiff down to Toulouse you, you I mean you couldn't make this up but tries to get it Toulouse it's, it's a heavy snowstorm skipper tries to get in there circles and he aborts a couple of times we've got buses waiting at Toulouse airport for the the Welsh teams clubs going off on their tours to pick them up and to take the nuns down to Lourdes Skipper says I can't get in Toulouse I'm going to have to go down to Tarb Tarb airport is right down in the Pyrenees so off he goes down there by the time he gets to Tarb in the meantime somehow or other the buses are told okay you've got to go down to Tarb which is probably about an hour and a half, two hour drive from, from Toulouse. So they all take off, scuttle down the road towards Tarp. Plane gets to Tarp, and, but he gets a call from Toulouse saying, I think you can get in here now. The snow's died down a bit. So he turns, flips around, goes back to Toulouse, tries again curses the air traffic control people at Toulouse and said, there's no bloody chance of me getting in here. Um, and he goes to Tarb. Now, I'm not quite sure at that point what happened to the buses which were scuttling down to Tarb. But because there was no mobile phones then. Yeah. But somehow or other, the police somewhere stopped the buses and told them to turn back, to go back to Toulouse. And he's now heading back down to Tarb. But again... I, I don't know how it worked out, but he eventually lands in Tarb with the 345 people on board. And somehow or other, we get the buses back because we've loaded the French supporters on these buses, which were to, that we were going to use to pick up the Welsh boys. To So we got to move them down to Tarb to get them uh, uh, put on the plane down there. I, it was just absolute bedlam. And to, uh, to cap it all, the plane gets on, stopped at little old Tarbes Airport. They, they haven't got a big enough 
they haven't got big enough steps or there were steps which was a gap but they were just like narrow steps so they had to get everybody off the plane one at a time helped step over i mean can you imagine health and safety now what they'd say about it eventually they get off off the get them off the plane eventually the french fans who are trying to get to to cardiff are there get them boarded and away he flies again but cardiff airport in those days wasn't a 24-hour airport so it couldn't wasn't allowed to couldn't land in Cardiff but it got by the time it got back up there it was about six o'clock on the Saturday morning it was the, day of the game hellish hellish so instead though Bristol airport was open so again we had the th the buses waiting at Cardiff for but we knew a bit in advance there so the buses were at Bristol to pick them up and take them to their Cardiff hotels but it was just the biggest monstrosity of a aggravation you could ever imagine I don't know how the heck we got through it, but we did, and we continued. We continued <laughs> sort of doing a lot of that stuff. So it's had its moments. In regards to having done rugby World Cups and Lions tours, do you ever see any difference between the fan base that come from England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland? What are some of the similarities, and what are some of the the differences between the nations that that come on your tours? Well, with the yes, with the with the with the the UK and Ireland, um, there, it was always our biggest fan base, supporter base for Lions was from Wales. We had a huge following in Wales. Um, great, great, lots of lovely people. But c compared to a World Cup, where in the time we were doing not so many from Wales. It was always the the more England fan supporters went followed World Cups than than Welsh did. But what was really good about a Lions tour was the four countries together because they were mixed up and they were all following the same team. And, and you know there were great friendships built up on that from the Irish to the the the, the Welsh, the English, Scots. We never. Scotland, we never actually got so many, but but there was always we always had a few, but the biggest for for Lions was the Welsh, and the the English, I think because then we also were involved with um, a lot of the, on the inbound market of bringing New Zealand Wallaby fans. Um, oddly enough, I, I just got an email this morning from an old pal who used to organise wallaby tours from um uh, from australia he'd bring a supporters group up um john ryan who used to be manager of the queensland team who again because i'd organized we'd organized a tour for queensland to the uk and the in the europe so on the back of that he was the manager of that that tour in about 1979 1980 1981 he bought a, a wallaby supporters group up here and he just sent me a photograph today of them I suppose in 2007, which was the last major big 
event that I was involved in with Gulliver's, we probably brought about four or five thousand inbound from other countries to France. So, uh, and New Zealanders being the biggest. And we had, um, I mean, they're great, they, yeah, great, lovely groups, but all with, um, all with um, guys, uh, you know, former All Blacks still doing that kind of thing, um, uh, bring, bringing the groups up here. And as part of that, we're one, because uh, I've spent a lot of time living near a village called Valbon in the south of France. And we, between the, the semis and the finals in 2007, we took over Valbon village, um, uh, every restaurant, and I think we we filled the square. All all the restaurateurs did exactly the same menu, um, and we had we invite they were invited by the mayor to, the t uh, to their sort of big field by the by the town hall there, where they put a rugby post and a little a, a tent, and all the Kiwi supporters were invited there for a um, aperitif, and. We had people like B.G. Williams, Brian Williams, and a lot of those guys were, were tour leaders with, with the groups. And they'd get on the on the guitar and they'd do all the, the, the songs and, and, and what have you. And then we gave them an hour or so in the village for shopping. And I remember one of the, the, the shopkeepers saying, never taken so much money in my life, you know, sort of uh, even on a weekend or something, you know, but they did that. And then we sat them all down to dinner in the square and mar marvelous atmosphere, fantastic atmosphere. Um, 1100 of them all in this one village, all rugby supporters from New Zealand. Um, great, great experience. Um, and they're, they're just they're knowledgeable supporters as well. John, next year, the Rugby World Cup 23 will return to your beloved France. Will you have any involvement? France 23, yes. I've um, Fortunately, my, my friend David Chevalier, who, is, who is, uh, runs Couleur, Group Couleur, Couleur Travel in France, who I've watched David's company blossom over the years, and they are now the, um, the big operator for next year. And he asked me to give them a a hand on some ideas for Marseille is chronically short of good hotel accommodation. So um, he knew that we've we've had, you know chartered ships before. So I did a little little job and chartered Club Med Two for the opening weekend, which will cover. It's going out of Nice uh, on the, the the day before England uh, Argentina, and then on the Sunday that's a Saturday, and then the Sunday there's South Africa against Scotland, and then it comes back into Nice and then uh, we have it doing exactly the same for the quarterfinals so I put that together for David for, for Couleur and they're selling that so I'm, I'm involved there with him on that and then I've got the involvement still with USA Eagles tours which used to be Gulliver's USA um, but I've still got a little involvement helping John Lane who runs that on that with for you know, the American market USA market just hoping USA qualifies, they're yet to qualify still, just hoping. But uh, they were clients from all over the place anyhow. So so I've, I've still got a little bit of a, a touch in there. 